0: Revelation chapter 15 is where we'll end up this morning. 15 and mostly 16, but... I'm going to ask you actually to open to Judges chapter 1 as we begin this morning. This is going to be really interesting this morning like the rest of the morning has been. Uh, uh, I'm going to probably spend 90% of the time getting to the outline that we started last week. I'll spend a little bit of time with the outline and then we'll wrap up and then next Lord's Day, Lord willing, I'll do most of the rest of the outline. I will give my homiletic students a very low grade for what I'm doing this morning. Uh, But but that is the nature of, of, of going through a passage week after week and and really trying to see what what is here for us and and what do we need to take away uh, from this. And so I'm taking a little bit of a detour to to get our minds focused on one of the big ideas that we introduced last week in this section that starts in Revelation chapter 15 verse 5 and really goes all the way through the end of chapter 16. The book of Joshua and Judges contain the history of the Israelites' obedience and sometimes disobedience to God uh, who commanded them to destroy and otherwise drive out the inhabitants of the nations, the inhabitants of the land, the various nations that God had promised them so that they could possess it. And there's a lot of criticism of this part of the Bible. Because God had sent them in to utterly destroy the inhabitants of each of the cities one by one and to leave no one alive, neither men, women, or children. And to kill all of the livestock and destroy all of the grain and to burn everything else in the city with fire. Don't take anything, destroy it all. What a terrible command from God to have to carry out and yet it was a just command because this was not imperialism. This was not a mere matter of a stronger nation dominating another so they can take their land, the kind of thing that may be happening, playing out in front of us in Europe right now or in in that continent. In fact, Israel was not a strong, warring nation. They were at this point a nomadic group of tribes. They had been forced into battle, but they were not warriors. Those who fought were the sons of Egyptian slaves who had been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. So what was this if it was not imperialism? This was Israel carrying out the judgment of God upon a wicked people whose day of reckoning had come. In fact, all of the way back in Genesis 15, God told Abraham, "I'm giving you this land to your descendants. Look around. It's yours. I'm going to give this to you and your descendants." But your descendants are not going to take over this land until about 400 years from now. And God told Abraham it was because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. That's Genesis 15:16. In other words, four more centuries have to pass as the people of the land, the people who lived in the promised land at the time, became more and more wicked until they reached the absolute limit of degradation and the society begins to implode. Sin destroys everything. Then they must be judged, God said. In fact, do you know how God described this judgment in Leviticus 18? God says that the nations he was sending Israel to judge had become thoroughly unclean. Let me put that slide up there for you. Had become thoroughly unclean and that the land was going to vomit them out as God brought the nation of Israel in to destroy them. So Israel was God's instrument of judgment. That's what's going on here, which is the reason They were not allowed to take any of the spoil. Do you remember what happened to Achan and his family? Why Why weren't they supposed to take the spoil? Because this was not empire building. This was not imperialism. This was God's judgment, and everything had to go. God wanted everyone to know for certain that this was not about enriching his people with the spoil. And that was not wrong. There were other times God said, Take the spoil. But in this particular case, the spoil belonged to God. This was his war. This was his judgment. And that's the reason God himself took down Jericho's walls to let his people in to carry out God's judgment. God wanted everyone to know this is my doing. So with with that context in mind, let's go to Judges chapter 1, verses 5 through 7, where we jump right into the middle of an account of the Israelites carrying out God's command to judge the nations in the land. And you're going to think this is a very curious passage to start with, and I agree. But watch this. They found Adonai Bezek. Adonai means lord or king, and Bezek is the territory, so it's the lord of Bezek. Uh, They found Adonai Bezek at Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. Well, that seems a really odd thing to do, but it was a, a common form of humiliation for Kings. Without thumbs or big toes, the the kings could no longer function normally to fight or to work and especially to lead people into battle, and they would be reduced to begging, which is what they want to do. They wanted to humiliate them. And apparently, Adonai Bezek was very familiar with this custom because look at verse 7. Adonai Bezek said, 70 kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table as I have done, so God has repaid me. He realized that. And they brought him into Jerusalem, which is the territory at that time, not the city. And he died there. You see what's going on here? Adonai Bezek had humiliated 70 kings in the same way. He made them grovel for food under his royal table to show his power and his dominance. And Adonai Bezek recognized through the judgment brought by Israel, that God had repaid him in exactly the same way. He had given him what he deserved. I was interested to discover this week that the word repaid that you see here in this text is a form of the word shalom, which is the word, of course, for peace. In the Old Testament, shalom is literally the idea of fulfillment or balance, something being made whole or put to rights. That's why Psalm eighty five ten says, righteousness and peace have kissed each other. When everything is made right, there is nothing more to do and everything is at rest. In this case, judgment has produced a kind of peace. It has brought balance. Justice has been served. There seems to be this kind of balance with God when we look at the rest of Scripture also. Psalm chapter 18, David writes, with the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you show yourself pure. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem torturous. In other words, God responds in kind according to what is deserved. It's the reason that God built a system of lex talionis, into the Jewish law. Most of you know what lex talionis is. It's a Latin word for a legal principle of an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. If one person sins against another in a particular way, he is to be punished by receiving the same. In Exodus chapter 21, God uh, commands, you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Now, some of you might be thinking, wait a minute, doesn't Jesus say lex talionis is a wrong thing? Matthew chapter five, Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Well, we just saw the verse in the Old Testament. But I say to you, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well, and so on. But you see, Jesus is speaking here of personal retaliation. He's saying, "You can't take the law into your own hands, because we do not see the situation perfectly what, like God does. We are not sanctioned by God, like Israel was in Joshua and judges, to go around enacting vengeance on people in the name of God. That is up for God uh, to, to God to decide. He's the only one who perfectly knows what ought to come. As judgment on somebody for sin. That is why Paul says in Romans 12, 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. God has sanctioned human government for this task, Romans 13. And God at times will carry out acts of judgment through other means, but this is his doing, not ours. In his divine wisdom, he knows what punishment is necessary to be perfectly meted out. He knows what punishment is necessary, is right, is good to be perfectly carried out. Now, all of that is background into the way God deals with his creation. And it's important for us to realize as we approach this final judgment in Revelation, because we see... This divine justice of God carried out upon the people of the world in this absolute and dramatic and catastrophic way. So severe are these judgments that unless the Lord brings an end to them by his coming, which we see in chapter 19, no one on earth can continue to survive. And I'll show you that this morning in the text as we, as we get through some of these judgments. You'll, you'll understand what actually has taken place in the world that makes it virtually uninhabitable. And the fact that this vengeance of God is perfectly carried out is expressed in a poetic section that we looked at last week, right in the middle of the seven judgments in chapter 16. So I'm going to have us begin actually in chapter 16, verse 4, where it says, the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. Now, we're picking up in the middle of of the judgments here. The, the angels come forth from the temple. God gives them the, the, these temple uh, pieces of, of bowls, which normally would, would be pouring out the drink offering or maybe burning incense. And they're, they're pouring out these bowls of wrath upon the earth. And as they do this in heaven, the, the plagues come upon the earth one after the other. We're picking it up with the third angel pouring out his wrath. We'll come back to the others in just a few moments. But remember what the angelic being And the perfected martyred saints under the altar say about this. Starting in verse 5, I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was. For you brought these judgments. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve, an eye for an eye. And I heard the martyred saints under the altar. We know this is what's going on because we, we read back in, in, in Revelation 6. The martyred saints, those who have died for their witness in Christ, they answer back, they say, amen. They've been waiting for God uh, to, to enact not just this, this vengeance, but for God to show that they were in the right and that God was in the right all along. And so they say, "Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments." And we saw last week that the phrase "it is what they deserve" translates the Greek words "they are worthy." The word "worthy" functions here very much like the word "shalom" we just saw in the Old Testament. It's the Old Testament. It, in, in, it, it's a, the Old Testament word that, which means to bring up the balance. to to even everything out. That's shalom. And that's what the idea of worthy is here, to bring up like the other sides of the scale. C.S. Lewis wrote his Chronicles of Narnia, and there's a, a book in there called The Horse and His Boy. I would read through the Chronicles of Narnia every summer when I was a kid, probably starting in junior high all the way through high school. And there's a girl in the story named Erebus whose father is a member of the ruling class in the story. And as part of her plan to run away from home, this this daughter of the ruler, Erebus, drugs the servant lady who is in charge of her, puts her in a deep sleep so that she can escape. And later on in the story, someone tells Erebus that she should probably feel very sorry for that servant because she was probably severely punished for letting Erebus out of her sight, and she couldn't help it. But it's interesting, Erebus' response in the story, she sort of shrugs and feels no remorse whatsoever, why should she care what happens to a servant? When I read that story as a boy, it always made me so angry, that part, because she didn't care about the servants. That's what C.S. Lewis wants his readers to feel at that point in the story, because Lewis is trying to create a category of thought in the minds of his readers. He's not writing allegory. He's creating ideas that are actually connecting with biblical ideas particularly shaping these ideas in the minds of children to help them understand biblical truth. So we were angry at Erebus' idea here that that the servant doesn't mean anything. So later in the story, a lion attacks Erebus while she's riding a horse, and the lion rips her back with his claws, and she screams out in pain, and she's very hurt. She has to have medical attention. She doesn't, doesn't recover for several days. But toward the end of the story, Erebus meets Aslan, who, of course, is the lion figure in the Chronicles of Narnia. And Aslan confesses, "It was I who wounded you. I am the only lion you met on your journey." They were wondering what this lion was that, that that tore her. It was Aslan himself, and he asks her, "Do you know why I tore you?" "No, sir." He said, "The scratches on your back, tear for tear." throb for throb, blood for blood, were equal to the stripes laid on the back of your stepmother's servant because of the drugged sleep you cast upon her. You needed to know what it felt like. And as a boy, the first time I read that passage, I was like, yes, you know, she got, it, it raised the sense of justice. And again, that's what Lewis wants the reader to feel. And he wants uh, the reader to go away and, and later reading the scripture say, yes, this is right, this is just that this should happen. But in a far more perfect way, this is exactly what is going on here in this judgment. God is giving unrepentant sinners the judgment they are worthy of, tear for tear, throb for throb, blood for blood. And we don't understand it, but God knows exactly what is deserved Because he alone is absolutely just, and his judgments, as it says, are absolutely true. Looking at this passage from our limited, finite perspective, we may struggle to understand the perfection of God's wrath, but even though we don't understand this judgment, we can trust that God is giving a worthy judgment, a just judgment. In fact, we can see how the judgments of God represent this ironic justice, not only in This third bowl, the fresh water turning to blood, but also in the other bowl judgments. And I want to consider for a few minutes what happens on the earth when these judgments are poured out. We're going to just look at the first five this morning and we're going to take the next two, uh, the last two next Lord's day, Lord willing. But in Revelation chapter 6, verse 2, let's look at the first bowl judgment. I'm reading verse 2 here on the screen where it says, So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. These painful sores are best described as festering wounds. That seems to be the, the, the Greek rendition. These festering wounds like boils caused by infection under the skin. A single boil, if you've ever had one, can cause tremendous pain, let alone having them all over your body. It would make any movement excruciating. And if you don't treat these sores correctly, infection can spread. Antibiotics from the infection and pain medication would probably be quickly sold out leaving most people on the earth with nothing to soothe the pain or treat the infection. But notice that the sores are specifically sent upon those who have the mark of the beast and worship the image of the beast, those who have participated in the false worship. This is a worthy judgment. This is deserved, God would say, because they are the ones who have hunted, and sought to give pain to anyone who had the mark or who would not take the mark of the beast, namely believers in Christ who would not worship him. And now they are the ones who are targeted by God. And it is painfully obvious that the one they worship in his place, which is the beast and the false prophet, cannot save them. Verse three says the second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse. And every living thing died that was in the sea. Now, with this second terrible judgment, you have to see that on the earth, the end has to be very near. Because this very plague on the sea of itself is enough to ensure that everything on the planet will eventually be extinct. John is remarkably specific. All the sea becomes like the blood of a corpse, of a corpse. And as you may know, when you die, your blood stops circulating. And because it's not being circulated in your body, it pools at the lowest point where it coagulates, turning into this reddish gunk. So, if the sea is like the blood of a corpse, it means that in some way it turns into this thick, putrefying mass that nothing can live in. In fact, when it says here that every living thing that was in the sea died, it certainly means all the marine life, but it may also be referring to those people who were on the sea, who made their livelihood from the sea, which is what we, we, we tend to think uh, earlier when, when, the, when the, the, the part of the ocean was turned to blood earlier in, in Revelation But the implications of this judgment are far from over with the death of what was on or in the sea. For example, where does the earth get most of its oxygen? If you think it's from trees and other vegetation, you're actually wrong. Scientists estimate that the earth gets 50 to 80% of its oxygen from the oceans and the seas, from the plankton in particular. And more than half of the life-giving air that is in the atmosphere if the ocean were turned to blood. If, if all of the sea were this way now, it would the, the oxygen level on the planet would drop like a stone. And there would also be this unbearable stench of rotting, dead things. People will flee inland. And one of the biggest sources of food and commerce on the planet will be wiped out. When we get to chapter 18, John is going to describe how the judgment of God destroyed world commerce. And he says in John 18 specifically that a loud mournful cry will go up from those who profited from the rich shipping industry. You see, there's another point of ironic justice here. The kingdom of darkness would not allow anybody to buy or sell unless they had the mark of the beast. And with this one stunning blow, basically God brings the world economy crashing down. Life on the planet earth, especially for those already suffering with painful boils and for those who live nearest the ocean, just became unbearable. At least for those who live inland, the fresh water is still drinkable, but not so fast. Here we have verse 4, the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And this is the judgment we have already considered the ironic justice, the worthy judgment of the wicked on the earth, shedding the blood of the saints and God giving them blood to drink. But with both the sea and the fresh water being polluted in some way that resembles blood, the planet is now uninhabitable, and the end is very, very near. Christ has to return very soon and set things right or nobody is going to be left alive. Which is why these judgments in the context of Revelation, even though we've got chapter 17 and 18 where there's a pause button pressed and uh, John describes how the kingdom, both religiously and commercially, is taken down. Satan's kingdom, the beast's kingdom. But really, after chapter 16, we have chapter 19 where the Lord comes. So these judgments happen very quickly at the end. But that's only three judgments. Verses 8 and 9 show a fourth one. The fourth angel poured his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat. Some have suggested that the fourth bowl judgment is a giant solar flare that reaches near the earth and burns people. Now, we can't say for certain what's going on here. We don't know how God is going to use his creation to do this, but I want you to notice John's wording. He says the sun was allowed to scorch people with fire. Most of you realize that the sun right now could scorch everybody with amazing heat, except for something that is a shield around the earth that does not allow the sun to do that, the ozone layer. It absorbs and blocks most of the sun's ultraviolet radiation. And this isn't a, a science lesson here. I just, I just want you to think, if we're reading Revelation where God is saying these things are going to happen, we have to start thinking a little bit, okay, how is this going to go down? And we can't be dogmatic on some of it and say for certain, but something is certainly going to happen. It could very easily be something like this. Simply, we would start, uh, if the ozone layer were removed, we would start to, to burn in the direct sunlight. Most plants would soon burn up which would further compromise the oxygen levels of the earth and cripple the food chain. Scientists say that we would develop skin cancer and our immune system would be compromised, but they say, honestly, we probably wouldn't live that long to die by those causes. If the ozone layer was taken away, we began to burn like we could if we were out in the bare sun. And again, we don't know that this is how God is going to let this whole thing go down, uh, but Greg Beale, in his commentary in Revelation points out that there is a direct connection between this plague and the idolatry of those who follow the beast because it brings the true character out of the ones who are being judged. Look at the rest of verse 9. It says that they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. This indicates a people completely committed to the false worship of the world. The, to curse means to blaspheme, which means to defame or malign God's character. Denying who he is and saying he is something else. Lying about God. And on the basis of a lie, saying I am not going to repent, I am not going to change my mind and turn from the beast and begin to worship God. This burning, whatever form it takes, is a small taste of the eternal burning that they are warned of if they do not repent and fear God and give him glory and worship him as the one true God. The power and control of this God who created all things is supremely evident to them, but they refuse to see it. Even when they begin to experience what eternal wrath feels like, they will not turn. This idea of the judgment Being connected to the refusal to turn from false worship to serve the living and true God, I think is even more evident in the next plague. And the last one we'll look at for just a few minutes this morning, Revelation 16, 10 through 11, the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pains and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. In the Gospels, there are two ways that Jesus commonly refers to eternal punishment, such as hell or the lake of fire. First, obviously, he said it was a place of fire. Mark 9 48 says that in this place the fire is not quenched. But second, three times in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus referred to the lake of fire as a place of outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In Judgments 4 and 5, I think we have a foreshadowing of all three of those elements of eternal torment, the fire, the outer darkness, and the gnashing of teeth. In bold Judgment 5, we have a reference to darkness. Or I, I'm sorry, in, in Judgment 4, it foreshadows the burning of the sun through the sun. And here in bold Judgment 5, we have a reference to darkness and gnashing of teeth. Now, it says the gnawing of tongues, but it's the similar idea of great, great anguish and pain. So both of these judgments, numbers four and five, are a foreshadowing of a warning of eternal wrath to come. This darkness is not simply the lights going out. It is utter darkness. Some of you perhaps have been in caves before, like the Carlsbad Caverns, and one of the great things they love to do on that tour is to turn the lights out while you're underground. I mean, deep, deep, hundreds of feet underground, where there is no light that can possibly get in, and they turn the lights out so you can find out what it is actually like to be in absolute, complete darkness. I mean, you can't even wave your hand in front of your face and, and know that your hand is there with your eyes. You can't see anything. And, 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 gratefully, they don't do that for very long because it starts to play with your mind immediately and and there's this fear that sets in. Imagine the world plunged into this kind of darkness. God sent uh, plagues on the land of Egypt and in Exodus chapter 10 Verse 21, he sent this darkness and and the, the, the book of Exodus calls it a darkness that you could feel and it says that people could not find each other and everybody stayed where they were for three days during this darkness. Imagine the psychological angst, the idea of complete separation, you can't see one another. It's hard to imagine that, let alone an eternity of separation and aloneness suffering in outer darkness. The separation that the darkness will cause by itself may explain some of the reason the people here in verse 10 will be in anguish. And again, they curse the God of heaven. I don't know that the pain and sores that John speaks of has to do with the darkness directly. It may be the fact that there's still there's still people who have been recently covered with boils and and then burned, and it may be this darkness is sort of the, the last straw, and they're they're in so much anguish and pain during all of this. It is in a tremendous series of judgments coming upon the world. And again, they curse or blaspheme God, and they refuse to repent like before. But this time, their refusal to repent is even more amazing because now they know for certain that this darkness comes from God who has complete power over the beast. He's just a puppet of Satan and the false prophet. Notice at the beginning of verse 10, again, it says that the bold judgment was poured out on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. He could have said Uh, the world was plunged into darkness. But the idea here is that God is directly assaulting the kingdom of the beast who is governed by Satan, showing that God is in complete control. He can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants. So the people who worship the beast know that he is completely vulnerable. And at the mercy of the God, they blaspheme. And yet they will not turn. Now, I'm going to press the pause button here on going through the judgments because number six needs some important explanation that I don't have time for this morning. But my point this morning really, again, once again, is to illustrate how these judgments are just. They're worthy of the ones experiencing them. Why they are deserved. That they are not simply random judgments. And if I can go to the outline for just a moment this morning. Last week I said that there are at least three reasons... In these two chapters, that these severe judgments are in fact deserved. And I know it's highly unusual to just take a quick look at this, but I, I just want to do it before we leave here and, and make a couple of points. Last week, we saw that holiness is one of the reasons God uh, requires this just judgment on sin. But if I can address a second reason, we might say that God's judgment is worthy or deserved because of human sin. So first of all, because of God's holiness. Secondly, because of human sin. And there are two sins that come out. First of all, their refusal to worship God. So you look at Revelation sixteen two, when the angel pours out his bowl upon the earth, it says the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshiped his image are the ones who get this judgment. Remember the angelic beings in chapter 14, they go throughout the whole earth calling people to worship and fear and glorify God alone while warning them what would happen if they continued to follow the beast. And here in chapter 16 are those who refuse to listen to that merciful call. The fundamental purpose for which we were created was to love and worship the Lord with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all our strength. Jesus called it the first and greatest commandment. So the refusal to worship God while worshiping the antithesis of Jesus Christ, the Antichrist, must be the first and greatest sin. But there's another sin mentioned, and that is the persecution of God's people. And we see it in Revelation 16:6, 6, in this chapter where the angel says, "They have shed the blood of saints and prophets." But this has been a theme in Revelation where those who worship the beast have been hunting believers to try to arrest them and imprison them and and, and kill them. And the point I want to make here is that these two sins, refusal to worship God, false worship, and persecution of believers go hand in hand. And there's a lot we can learn from that. Your presence alone as a believer in Christ will cause you to be hated by anybody whose God you threaten. If you represent the truth, just because you are there with them and they know what you believe, they are confronted with a reality that is different than the one they believe. Some of you have experienced this firsthand when you entered a new work environment and you didn't talk like they did. And you didn't have the same topics of conversation they did, and you did not fill your life with the same activities. We've we've had our kids working in secular jobs as as they've grown up, and you know, our oldest three are are now married. And uh, I you know I, I've I've pastored for quite a while, and I've counseled with a lot of different people, and talked to a lot of people who are in all kinds of different lifestyles and so forth. But the 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 uh, the sheer youngness, the how young some of these girls are and some of the young men are who know so much and have done so much and seen so much. I am staggered by it. I really am in that kind of environment. And you don't live that way. Not because you think God created you better than the rest of them but simply because you have been transformed into the image of Christ through the power of the Spirit because of the gospel. And some of the employees may have simply found you to be odd to them but liked you anyway. They, they, they might have found your morality quaint or refreshing and built a friendship with you and you have a chance to minister to them. But others will hate you because they see you as a challenge. They will make fun of you and do mean things to you and try to discourage you to get you to stumble because God has placed you there as living evidence that stands against the worldview they have embraced or constructed for themselves. And that wouldn't bother them so much, perhaps, except for the fact that in your worldview of the truth, eternal punishment awaits those who do not believe what God has said. And I think that people know this who are not believers. They know something is not right. Some of you have known what I'm describing in your public school, maybe even your Christian school. Some of you have known it in your neighborhood, some in your social setting. Some have known it when you entered the military. The Apostle Paul explains this in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and I want to close with this passage. He says, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, a fragrance from death to death. You smell like death to them because they are going to death. And the other, a fragrance from life to life because God is saving them or they are believers and they are going to life. And the fragrance you bear is a life-giving fragrance. Paul says that when you are around other people, you are an aroma to them. Those who, who are hardened against the Lord, who refuse to worship him, you are like the stench of death. And your faithfulness and devotion to God and your kindness to them, even when they are mean to you and your hope in Christ frightens them and they want you gone, this is why Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12 that those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. You can never have godliness invade ungodliness without expecting a reaction. But for others who are being saved, as verse 15 puts it, whether they have come to faith in Christ yet or Paul intends here to talk about those that God is bringing to Christ and that punctiliar moment where they come to faith has not yet happened, but, but they're, they are being saved. They want to know more. They want to know what makes you different. They, they are humble enough to know they need your hope and they want to know more about your Savior. But these two scenarios will not happen unless we are living faithfully in the sight of God. And how tragic that we would be in a situation where we have the opportunity to do what's right in obedience to God, but we bow to the pressure of those who are perishing in that environment because we don't want to look too different. We don't want to to seem too odd. We don't want to give off too much of the fragrance. But when we avoid being the aroma of death to those who are perishing, not only do we deny the Lord who died for us, but we are also failing to be the aroma of life to those who are being saved, to those who the Lord may want to use us to bring them to salvation. You want to have the greatest compassion on those who are perishing? You remain faithful to God. You maintain faithfully a testimony of God's goodness and mercy and kindness and purity. We're reading here in Revelation 15 and 16 about people going to eternal damnation. God has placed us here that that might not happen to all of them. They're going to a judgment worthy of their sin. We shouldn't help them along their way to that judgment by participating in their sin or keeping a low profile so that we we can not have to stand against their lifestyle. And perhaps God will give you the opportunity to do just what Jude says, snatch them from the flames of this most severe yet worthy judgment that has come upon them. Let's pray that God will make us that kind of people who have that kind of aroma, that even as we struggle to understand what God is doing in the judgments and say, yes, God, it is just, we are at the same time doing what a merciful God does and trying to rescue the world that is on its way to perishing. Father, thank you.